Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. My co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, is off today. Our show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. As with Senior Straight Talk, all episodes of the previous show can be heard on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. A few weeks ago, I began to introduce short news items at the top of the show. You can now hear Senior News Today on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe. Also, for those listeners feeling stressed, stretched, and overwhelmed, help is here. Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you recharge, reset, and recommit as you face life's challenges. You can find them on my website at phyllisamonassociates.com. Remember to look out for my upcoming book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, which should be out in a few weeks. Now for the news item for today. Part of the Biden-Harris agenda for nursing home reform, which will go a long way in protecting nursing home residents and healthcare workers includes requiring a mandatory infection disease specialist at every nursing home in the United States, protecting healthcare workers' rights to form and join unions, directing the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to implement an emergency temporary standard for nursing home workplace safety, requiring the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General to audit nursing home cost reports and ownership data in order to create more transparency and invoking the Defense Production Act to increase supplies of PPE. The plan also calls for restoring the Obama-era ban on forced arbitration agreements for nursing home residents, which was reversed last summer after Trump spearheaded that initiative. Advocates and some lawmakers largely contend that requiring residents and their families to enter into those agreements deprives them of their legal right to a fair trial in the case of abuse or neglect of their loved ones. The nursing home industry, however, argues that it is a way to reduce liability expenses and provide quicker resolutions for complaints. Stay tuned for more information about initiatives for protecting and ensuring the safety and well-being of nursing home residents and healthcare workers. At this juncture, I also want to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. Today, I'm so thrilled to have as my guest, Dr. Michael Wasserman. Um, let me tell, um, tell you a little bit about Dr. Wasserman before we begin the conversation with him. I'm so pleased and honored that he's here with me today. So Dr. Michael Wasserman is a geriatrician who's devoted his career to serving the needs of older adults. He 
he's been a tireless advocate for vulnerable older adults during the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Wasserman has served as a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a framework for equitable allocation of vaccine for the novel coronavirus committee. He's also editor-in-chief of Springer's upcoming textbook, Geriatric Medicine, a Person-Centered Evidence-Based Approach. Previously, Dr. Wasserman served as Chief Executive Officer for Rockport Healthcare Services, overseeing the largest nursing home chain in California. And prior to that, he was the Executive Director for Care Continuum, a health services advisory group the Quality Improvement Organization for California. In 2001, he co-founded Senior Care of Colorado, which became the largest privately owned primary care geriatrics practice in the United States. So welcome, Dr. Wasserman. I'm thrilled for you to be here with me today. And um, I mean, there's much more that maybe you want to tell the listeners about in your bio. I didn't want to go on and on and on. I wanted to give you the opportunity. So Feel free. No, I, I, number one, I'm, I feel it's a privilege to be on with you. And I think the, the most important thing is talking about how we can help protect vulnerable older adults. Oh, I agree. Um, couldn't agree more, right? That's uh, both of our space. Actually, I'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about how we met, if that's okay. Um, that how we great. connected. It's all about connection, right? And um, you're in California, correct? And, um, yes. and I'm on the East Coast. And we actually met over Twitter. Um, you were tweeting some marvelous things and I was responding to them. And, um, and then I reached out and uh, we had some, a great conversation and, and here, you are with, um, here you are with me today. So I, 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 go ahead. You, you, want you to know, I, I gotta tell you, I have made so many friends over Twitter since March, um, some of them are colleagues, uh, many of them have informed me of what's going on. In fact, I was aware of some of the early outbreaks in nursing homes across the country before the media got wind because of colleagues I met on Twitter. Oh, wow. So I, I, I actually find Twitter to be an incredibly useful um, social media tool if you use it properly. And, and for me, the only people I follow on Twitter are our are, are, are colleagues in geriatrics, the field of aging, gerontology. Um, and really, that's what I focus on. And, and it's really, to me, an incredible tool. So um, really, and you, you, you've become one of my uh, new Twitter friends. Right. Oh, I'm so proud to hear you say that. So you talked about, the, you, you mentioned the fact that uh, you've been really, you recognize this, this situation with COVID in the very beginning. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, when did you first recognize the potential issues with COVID and what it represented to our nation's nursing homes? So on February 29th, I read about the outbreak of COVID in a Kirkland nursing home in, in Kirkland, Washington. And Literally at that moment, I knew what was coming. And, and everything I've done in my career has, ha, has guided me and given me experience to, to, to recognize based on that single outbreak of what was going to happen. And, and I'll be honest, I, I, uh, 
I was semi-retired at the time. I was hoping to enjoy time with my wife and my grand, what, what is now two grandchildren. Um, and since the first week of March, I've been, for lack of a better word, obsessed with trying to protect older adults. And, and what's interesting, on March 9th, two things happened on March 9th. Uh, number one, I called my parents, who are in their 80s, and I said, don't leave your house. Hmm. Okay? That was March 9th. Um, and then later that day, I was interviewed by NBC News, and the next day I was in the tagline that this would be the worst thing to hit nursing homes in our lifetime. And a statement, I may add. Absolutely. And, and literally two weeks later, CBS Morning News interviewed me. They didn't, they didn't actually show it for like a week, but I told them on March 25th that nursing homes would become our country's killing fields. Mm. And, and I think you may know, I, I you know, and, and I, I literally was, was spending every waking hour trying to gather information, talking to colleagues. And, and by the way, it, this isn't me. You have to understand, I'm a geriatrician. I was blessed with being semi-retired at the time so I could devote this time. All of my colleagues knew what I knew. Mm -hmm. So I was speaking to geriatricians in Connecticut, in Philadelphia, in Washington, in Virginia, and they were pulling their hair out like, how come the world isn't listening to us? And I said, look, you guys, you guys do the hard work on the front lines. Um, I'm going to do the best I can to get this messaged. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And, and uh, you know, I, I think we've actually accomplished a lot. It, it, the first week of March, literally, we recommended that every nursing home in California, much less the country, make their already designated infection preventionists full-time. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and we, I, we, I recommended it. We recommended it for a simple reason. I was in the, I ran a large nursing home chain. I know that the typical infection preventionist had pulled in 12 different directions and they're not given the time to do that. You know that you've worked in facilities, you know that, Right. If I could just interject something, I was just talking with a, a colleague last night, and we were saying um, where we met, uh, which was in 2000, uh, was it in 2000, maybe? or No, maybe we met in 1998. Uh, we were working in a uh, skilled nursing facility that had a vent unit. Anyway, we were talking about the infection, uh, the infection control, what it was called then, the infection control nurse that was in that building full time. And uh, we were talking about it and saying she was no joke. And there were no, there were very few issues because she was there full time and she was no joke. She did not play. And we, this is um, how many years, 22 years later, we're still talking about her. You know, I, I, I don't know if people realize the value that they, they have in this environment. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's about workflow when it comes to nursing homes. And the inertia, most nursing homes, they're, they're feeling like they're putting out fires every day and they're running around chasing their tail. And in this case, it was as someone who'd run a nursing home chain, as someone who's worked in nursing homes for 30 years, it was just obvious to me, 
make sure that that one person has complete time to devote every hour of their work life to infection preventionist work, and it'll make a difference. And um, the cool thing is on September 29th, the governor of California signed a bill requiring every nursing home in California to have a full-time infection preventionist. I, I read about that. It's really terrific. And I'm hoping, I actually spoke to someone at CMS uh, yesterday, and I am hoping we find a way in the new administration that's coming on January 20th, not a moment too soon, <laughs> that, that CMS uh, tightens that rule because what this administration was doing with that rule was loosening it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, they went from, um, it went from part-time to yes. um, sufficient time, which is, uh, goes the same route of sufficient staffing, which is open to anybody's whim and interpretation and financial convenience, I will say. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I hope we're leading the way in California with this. And I hope that, I, I, you know, I, I, I do know of some congressional folks who want to make this happen full time. And it, keep in mind, the infection prevention piece is only one part of the whole puzzle. Right. But without it, uh, very few other things work. Right. There, there's almost no chance without it. You, uh, I, ha I have said, um, you know, part of the, the, uh, the situation in the nursing homes, and, and I'll ask you what, what your opinion is about what you think some of the major issues were that contributed to, to the problem. And I'm sure we both have, a, you know, very distinct opinions about that. They're probably very similar. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the person who is in that role, and I, I mean, I had a horrible <laughs> situation um, back in March when I was covering in a nursing home. I mean, it was, this was the person who was the infection preventionist who um, doubled as the supervisor. Uh, she called herself the assistant director of nursing. She really wasn't. But just to give you an idea, I mean, this person told me because it was convenient to go in a room where there was blood splattered all over the floor and there wasn't, that wasn't really a problem. So uh, the, the training that these people um, get is very important and the dedication to that training. And I've said many times, I was never, sh not that I don't know, Nobody ever demonstrated the correct way to put on and remove PPE. There is a very distinct way to do it. Uh, we did get instruction in hand washing, which most of us know anyway, but there was no training for that. And you could be spreading the virus or spreading any pathogen just by how you take off the PPE. No, you know, so one thing I, I, I mean, I try to do too all the time is look, you work in nursing homes and, and, I think the one thing I want to preface everything I say with is the people who work in nursing homes, the people who work on the front lines, the CNAs, the nurses, the speech therapists, the, you know, everyone are all incredible human beings. Okay. Look, most administrators and directors of nursing are incredible human beings. They care. They want to do good things. So I often talk about the industry. Okay. And what I, what I need to be clear on is the real estate owners 
that control the nursing home industry. They, they apply pressure. And that pressure is often applied also from high up on the operations side so that ultimately those administrators and DONs are put under significant pressure. And, and to be fair, they have kids, they have families, they have a job, they're trying to do their job. And they don't have the tools or the wherewithal to fight back. And, and I think there's a day of reckoning that has come to the owners of the nursing home real estate and the hierarchy, the executives in the nursing home companies to acknowledge that we are running many hospitals and that requires a focus on quality of care and clinical care and Look, and, and I saw your, even though we're on a podcast, I saw your look in terms of the administrators. Most nursing home administrators are about heads in beds. Okay? That's what, well, that's why right? I, uh, that's why, uh, you know. yeah, yeah. But that said, I have, had, I have had the honor of knowing some incredible administrators. I have who, too, by the who way. Who are able to, to do that. I, I have to say, I have too. There are a couple that I, uh, one in particular, and an owner that I talk about to this day. The, the problem is, they're the exception, not the rule. Correct. And, and you know, I, I get pushback from people sometimes saying, hey, be careful, you're putting a broad brush. And I'm like, you know what? For every facility that doesn't do it the right way, People are dying and one nursing home is too many for people to die because of things that could have been done better. You know, I, um, I, I um, have a book coming out in a few weeks, as you know, we talked about it. And um, what I, I wrote in this uh, preface to the book really is that um, there are uh, people doing a better job. There are people who want to do a better job. They're trying to, despite the, the financial constraints and maybe the pressure put on them from above. And there are, uh, most people probably don't know there are hedge funds that are invested in a lot of these chains. And most of these are for-profit chains with these difficulties that we're talking about. Um, but the nursing home uh, industry, um, they, they got their reputation way before COVID. Um, and uh, that reputation is longstanding, despite the fact there are people doing a good job, trying to do a good job, trying to do better, as we're saying. Uh, but the, the greater number of them seem not to be able to measure up. Would you, you know, think so? On, oh, yeah. No, on March 3rd, March 3rd, I sent an op-ed to the Wall Street Journal that was entitled, Coronavirus Unmasks Nursing Home Problems. They didn't publish it. No one published it. But to your point, it's not about coronavirus. It's about the underlying weaknesses in the industry. And, and I'll tell you, I actually have, have honed in on one area that I think is underdeveloped, un misunderstood, or not understood, and that is leadership and management skills. 
Oh, 150%. I wrote about this. I have a whole chapter devoted to this. So this is great. We're so in sync. We were in sync from the first conversation, right? I think the first couple of sentences. No, exactly. And, and I think, you know, so back in April, my organization put out what we call the long-term care quadruple aim for COVID-19 response, which is abundant personal protective equipment, readily available testing, stellar infection prevention, and emergency preparedness operations. So, so the first three are clear. The emergency preparedness has to do with leadership and management. If you've got excellent leaders, if you've got an excellent leader as an administrator and DON and medical director and infection preventionist, they will be operating in emergency preparedness mode from the get-go. This is a, a global pandemic. Every nursing home in the country should be operating under its emergency preparedness plan. And I will venture to guess that maybe, maybe if we're lucky, 5% are doing that, even as we speak today, eight months into this pandemic. Well, I, I would agree with you. And I would say that when you talk about leadership and preparedness, that some of it has to do with the people in leadership roles that are really not sufficiently prepared to be in those roles. And um, I've written about that too. I've talked about that quite a bit. I've been talking about it for years. And um you know, people are in a, they work in a building for a long time. Maybe they have a particular position. They're in a particular department. Maybe they run that department. They're friends with the administrator. And then all of a sudden they're promoted to a position. I was telling somebody about a situation. I was telling someone earlier today about a building that I was in uh, last fall. They called me to help out. And there was somebody who was put in as the director of the rehabilitation department. I knew her from years before she was, but it doesn't matter what profession she was. And, um, you know, a few days in, I said, is anybody going to, you know, uh, give this girl any um, management training or mentoring or send her to any um, management courses? Because, um, you know, she doesn't really have that piece. I don't know if they ever did. She, you know, many people left, good people left, and she ultimately left because of very many people, they don't feel satisfied. They know they're not doing a good job. And then that's not satisfying for anybody. And that happens a lot, I would say, in nursing homes, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. So the average 100-bed nursing home is about a $10 million a year business. Mm -hmm. That makes it a, a fairly large small business as, mm -hmm. you know, $10 million. Most people would consider to be, you know, a reasonable size business. And to me, it's one of the most complex businesses. It's basically a mini hospital. Right. It's, and so right. The, the, nurse, the administrator should, by definition, literally be the CEO of a $10 million complex business. Now, you show me the training and preparation we give nursing home administrators to be the CEO of a $10 million complex business. Now, the DON is essentially the chief operating officer. Correct. And you, again, show me the training we give, the leadership or management training we give those DONs to be the chief operating officer over a $10 million complex business. And, and by the way, not only is the business complex, 
the folks we care for are the most complex population in the history of the universe. Okay, and I say that because 100 years ago, the 90-year-olds living in our nursing homes were dead. They didn't make it tonight. Okay, the folks we have living in our nursing homes today have multiple chronic conditions, cognitive impairment. Some of it's a testament to medical science or whatever you want to say that they're around, but they are a highly complex population of customers, clients, patients, residents, however you want to word them. And, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, who's running this complex business? And we are not giving them the tools. Now, I may get in trouble for saying this because the, the nursing home industry doesn't necessarily like what I say, but I only tell the truth. And that is, I believe for a lot of the industry, historically, not everyone, this has been by design. Because if you have people who aren't trained to run that business, you can influence them more effectively from above. So if the goals are how much money can we make, how much profit can we do, et cetera, et cetera, and you apply pressure on those leaders who don't have the tools to respond effectively, uh, they're going to just try to do whatever they can to, again, put heads in beds, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, which is, which is why one of, the, one of my big pushes is engaging certified, competent medical directors. Oh, um, yes. Right. You know, over my career, I've had some times where I've gone to my administrator as a medical director and said, I'm not allowing admissions to this facility because I don't trust that we can handle them. And there are very few medical directors who will do that because they'll get fired. Correct. Um, and, and so, again, we're running hospitals. The medical director needs to be an engaged participant in leadership in uh, their I, facilities. I agree. And, and um, why is that? Because hospitals are discharging people in a sicker uh, state. And so that's why nursing homes have become mini hospitals and taking care of people that are far more sick. And um, I have been in buildings where, not that many, but I have been in buildings where, um, I would say especially in the buildings where there were vent units, because that's a whole other, um, whole other level where uh, somebody would come as an admission, they'd say, Where, don't take them off the uh, gurney, please send them back, because that's a, that's a whole different level of, of liability. But I've, I've, um, I've been in places certainly where, where I'd say, like, why, did, why was this person accepted? I mean, this is, not the, this is not the place and we can't manage this. But it's back to what you're saying, heads and beds. And it is a business. I, I don't know if, how, if listeners really realize how much of a business the nursing home industry is. I'm not saying it shouldn't be a business. It is a business. I'm just saying that the business concerns shouldn't override the concerns for taking care of people. You know, look, I, I'm a, I, I don't actually like the term, but people have called me and it is true. I, I am an entrepreneur. I, I mean, I've, I've run large businesses. I started my own business. On the healthcare side, the, the attitude, the approach I've always taken is do the right thing. And if you do the right thing, 
and you understand business, you can be successful, you can be profitable, you can have customer satisfaction. Um, now, by the way, you can also make a lot of money doing the wrong thing, but that's just not the way I roll. So, <laughs> now, and, and there, there are people that do do that, but in the long run, I think it comes, back, uh, it comes back to bite them. And I have always said the same thing. If you do the right thing, uh, because I always say good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. So if you do the right thing, the people will come. Don't worry about it. Okay, mate, will they be there every day that you want them there? No, but in the long run, it will average out and you will be better off. So the problem in the nursing home industry is that the capital, the money resides in the real estate. Correct. And we've seen this with many of the large nursing home chains and companies. They will let the operations fail but the, the real estate does fine. So the, the operations goes bankrupt. So that's one of the challenges is the industry, and I've, I've talked about this, I've, I've written about it. Um, it is a day of reckoning. The, the real estate owners in the nursing home industry are either going to have to finally get engaged and recognize they have an ethical obligation to work towards improving quality or they're going to have to accept the consequences of the government getting involved in taking away whatever they think they have right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different approaches to this, up to and including literally taking the real estate from them. Right. Or one of my favorite things is if we keep it the way it is, when a facility gets a deficiency and gets fined, find the real estate owner. Don't find the operations. My own daughter said, look, isn't putting a penalty on the facility operations just like taking a poorly performing school and taking money away from it? That's not going to help them do better. That's true. And, and the answer is take the money away from the real estate owners. They got all the money they need. They're doing quite fine, thank you. And I'll tell you, the moment we start taking money from the real estate owners when there's poor quality the sooner they're going to get involved in uh, putting resources and investing in improving quality. Mm. You know, on that note, we're going to take a short break. This has just been a fantastic. I, I'm sure the listeners are enjoying it as much as I am. And uh, there's just so much valuable information and value that, we, that we're providing to listeners about nursing homes and if they have a, to make a decision about moving their loved one into a nursing home or they have a loved one in a nursing home, I mean, this is just invaluable. So we'll be right back on Senior Straight Talk. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. 
Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of All of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm having a great conversation here with Dr. Michael Wasserman. And uh, we're talking about nursing homes and all the cool stuff he's doing and the fact that we're so aligned in many of our, um, our, our thinking and our insights. It's, it's really, for me, a real, a real treasure to have this conversation. So when we, now that we're coming back to the conversation, I wanted to ask you, a lot of people say that the number of nursing home fatalities are secondary to the virus are decreasing in number. So what do you think are the contributing factors to that? I think there's a couple things. I think I think we have to be very honest about this, and that is, um, in the last eight months, the most frail people who live in nursing homes in the country, many of them have died from the virus, and they haven't been replaced. So the pool of people living in nursing homes uh, is smaller. Number one, so we have fewer people in nursing homes. I think occupancy has dropped around 10 to 12 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who were the most risk of dying have gotten the virus and died. And so I think when we look at the fact that the numbers have gone down, I think on a certain level, there is something positive in terms of doing infection control, getting PPE to facilities, having testing available. That certainly made a difference. I mean, look. Back in March and April, we didn't have any of that. And a lot of people died. But since then, we've gotten those things. And so I think we've improved. But this is where, you know, I don't, no one should be taking victory laps. People are still dying in nursing homes. And actually, as the surges occur in communities, and I just read about this today, we're seeing an uptick in nursing home deaths around the country, especially in states where the virus has been growing and occurring more frequently. So I think, look, in my opinion, so long as anyone's dying from this virus, we have to keep working hard to protect them. And so I'm, I, I think there's some positives out there, but I also think that uh, we still have a lot of nursing homes that are still significantly at risk and we cannot let our guard down. Yeah, I agree. I think also that because there have been so many nursing home deaths and um, it's, it's been highlighted in, in the media, 
and the whole issue about isolation and people not being able to visit their loved ones. So I think despite the fact that a number of people have passed away in nursing homes and there are empty beds, I think a number of people are not going to nursing homes. They're actually trying to avoid nursing homes at all possible costs, which actually might be the whole mindset moving forward from here. No, I think, you know, we are reaching a point where there might be more or at least an even number of people dying in nursing homes from social isolation than from the virus. Absolutely. And and so we need to be looking at both those things. I think there's some data coming out that um, greenhouse nursing homes have fared better, fewer deaths. Absolutely. Again, this is a day of reckoning. The, The industry must look in the mirror and ask itself what it's here for, what it does good, what it does bad, because um, I think we really need to, uh, to be looking at that. Right. There was an article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about that very thing that uh, greenhouse homes fared better in terms of the virus, probably in some measure because people have their own rooms. Um, it's not a question of isolation, just people have private rooms. Yeah, no, there's no question that when you have more than one person in a room or more than two people in a room, for sure, that that, I mean, when you have rooms that have four people in a room, you're just making things harder and harder on yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think also that there may be, you know, this movement for smaller types of, 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 buildings, I'll say dwellings, nursing home, nursing homes or nursing home environments, rather than these quote unquote big box, which have 200, 300, 400 beds. I've worked in some that were close to 500. Uh, There are some that are bigger. A lot of them are smaller, 100 and 200, 250. But um, the bigger they are, the bigger the problems. Now, we, we really have to ask ourselves what we need to do to to bring quality care to the most vulnerable people in our society. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what are some of the other initiatives that you are aware of moving forward for, for nursing homes or for how we're, um, how we're protecting our older adults? You know, I, I, I think, boy, that's a really good question. I, 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 I think we do have to look at, how the system is structured, how the real estate flows. And again, that's something that people don't really fully comprehend that, um, look, when the nursing home operators complain they don't have much money, they don't have much margin, that's true. They're telling the truth. But what they're not telling you is the folks who own the real estate are making a fortune. Right. And they're not putting any of it back in and they're not leveraging those assets to borrow money to improve quality and facilities. So I think it's high time that we look at the whole picture and, 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 and there needs to be more transparency. Mm. Um, you know, nursing home owners who also own supply companies and, and wound care companies and everything yeah. else, you got to look at the whole picture. Right. And, and say, how much money is there and how do we use it to provide the best care possible? Right. I mean, you, uh, you and I talked about that before and I, you've worked in nursing homes and certainly I haven't. So I've seen this quite a bit. You know, they may, they own the operations, but then they also own the tube feeding company. So all the money really goes into the same pot in a way. Um, yes. 
And, uh, but, but if somebody looks at it, they don't see that uh, because exactly. each one of those entities is a separate entity. And like I might own with you and then you might own with my daughter and then my daughter might own with your daughter. And then, but it's really all the same pot. And there exactly. does have to be more transparency. And I was just reading an article the other day that part of the Biden-Harris platform is to have more transparency, to look at the data, to see the ownership, to see, um, you know, who owns what and where the money is. And that was actually part of um, an Obamacare initiative. Yeah, no, I, 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 there's a lot of good things in the, in the Biden-Harris nursing home uh, plan. Uh, you know, they're, they're talking, number one is getting PPE to every nursing home. Correct. That is absolutely critical and essential I think um, he said he's going to invoke the Defense Production Act. Finally. Yeah. Right. You know, what, what has frustrated me for eight months is, look, I love the vaccine program. I think it's great. I'm not going to take anything away. I mean, I have grave concerns about how it gets implemented because at the present time, the government doesn't know what it's doing about that. But in terms of actually getting a vaccine going, wonderful. But why not spend the same amount of money making sure that every nursing home has PPE and every nursing home has testing? I we could have done all of these things. Absolutely. Spontaneously, and we would have saved lives. But, and it's not only about um, testing. I mean, they need really rapid results tests. They, they really do need that because... I, when I was working in nursing homes in, uh, in New York during when it was a hot spot, and we had to be tested twice a week, um, but if you don't get your results back for a week and a half, what good is the test that you just took? I mean, it, oh, it's almost pointless. It's almost don't get pointless. me started. I, you know, back in March and April, I was all over, I, you know, I was on, I, I, actually, that was uh, probably both times I was on Rachel Maddow's show talking about testing. And because we were so frustrated that we, there wasn't testing or testing wasn't available or when testing was available, it wasn't being used. And here we are eight months later. And even though the government has supplied all these antigen tests to nursing homes, they didn't, they didn't tell them how to use them. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, here's, I don't know. You can come up with so many examples of of technology, but they didn't they didn't send along the operations manual. Well, it's like having a smartphone and 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 uh, nobody tells you how to use all the applications, right? It's the same thing, really. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's that's been a frustration. But you know, I, I think again, I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, from what I've seen that we're going to turn a corner here. Um, I know there's a lot of good people at CMS and the CDC who want to do the right things. And I, I'm hopeful that uh, under the new administration, they'll be given an opportunity to implement the types of things that will make a difference and save lives. Yeah, I, I do believe that some of the rollbacks, like in, um, in oversight that CMS uh, proposed to increase the amount of time 
between surveys for nursing homes. Originally, it was from one year to two years. I read something uh, not too long ago that it was up to 30 months and maybe 36 months, which would be devastating. But I, I really do believe that that was under pressure. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. Because no, I don't I think any right-minded, right-thinking person would think that that's a good idea. No, I, 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 I agree. I, you know, again, I, I think, boy, um, you know, it's funny. I was telling someone today, it's easy at this moment to look backwards at what hasn't been done right. But I think all of us need to be fully focused on what we need to do going forward that will work. And during a pandemic, we don't have energy to waste Mm -hmm. fighting. We don't have energy to waste criticizing what didn't work. We have energy to focus on what will work. And it's ironic, Our, our quadruple aim, I'm very proud of our organization because I don't think there's anyone who will disagree with if you focus on abundant personal protective equipment, rapid turnaround, readily available testing, stellar infection control, you're going you're gonna to be there, whether you're in a nursing home or assisted living or a supermarket or a meatpacking company or anywhere. And yet, and, and now when you bring the vaccine on, and I'll, I'll, I'll Here's my concern about the vaccine. If we announce there's a vaccine and people will suddenly think, wonderful, everything's going to be okay. And they let their guard down and they stop using their masks and they stop washing their hands. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And so what we need to message, especially to nursing homes, is we have to work even harder We have to make absolutely sure that everyone in that facility has a mask. They're never going to run short. If we could, if we could test every day, you know, if the government had just ratcheted up manufacturing of testing so that you could test your staff every day when they walk in the door, we could do so much more to protect and then allow not only to test the staff, Test the visitors and the family, and then we can have visitation. I agree. I agree. You know, this whole notion of taking people's temperature, while in and of itself is a, um, is, is a big, you're laughing. I, so people don't know we're, we're doing this on Zoom so we can see each other, um, even though they'll only be listening, but we're both laughing. Um, that, um, you know, I said from the very beginning, um, Listen, I could have a toothache and have an elevated temperature. I could have a, uh, you know, UTI. I don't know if people know that's a urinary tract infection, but I could have a lot of things. And um, I could have a slightly elevated temp. That doesn't mean I have um, COVID or I've been exposed to COVID. I mean, you know, you're um, taking your blood oxygen level. I mean, that's that's a far more accurate predictor. But the worst, um, the worst thing, though, is that you don't need to have symptoms to Correct. be transmitting the virus. Right. And so the temperature, yeah, if you capture someone who's got a fever, feels miserable, you know, hopefully they wouldn't have come to work anyway. Hopefully they wouldn't have come in. So, right. you know, I'm not against checking temperatures because there are stupid people out there who will come 
any way with their fever. But you're missing all those. It, it's you've got. To, we've got to be careful not to rest our laurels on on things that aren't really going to help us significantly. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you say about people dropping their guard. So on a personal note, uh, my son lives in California. And um, as I said, I'm on the East Coast and my daughter is about 45 minutes from me on the East Coast. And she announced to me a few weeks ago that uh, my son was uh, flying um, East for Thanksgiving. And I was like, gee, I don't know if that's really such a great idea. Uh, Really? You sure about that? And she said, no, uh, whatever. Uh, I'm divorced. So her father apparently said he didn't think it was such a good idea either. She was inviting other people. She has a small house. I was like, you know, I don't really think so. So then she uh, she must have thought about it or somebody must have, you know, said something to her. She said, OK, everybody's going to have to be tested, which, OK, whatever. Um, today, I just text her and I was like, you know, I really don't know that this is such a good idea. I mean, you know, he's coming from California. He's going to be on a plane for six hours. Cases are spiking. Um, he is a very healthy person. I mean, he's a physical fitness person, but that's so what? And um, I suggested that maybe this might not be a great idea, a great plan. And her response was, uh, he's going to be tested when he gets on the plane, and he'll have to be tested when he gets off the plane. I said, so what happens <laughs> <laughs> what happens if he gets off the plane and he's positive or he has a temperature? What happens? He stays in the airport. I mean, this doesn't make much sense to me. And um, so we're going up and back about this. So I'm interested to hear what you think about that. I was supposed to be on a plane yesterday to Indianapolis to speak at a long-term care meeting that is occurring in person with all sorts of testing and protocols and everything. Uh, 10 days ago, I looked at the rate of cases in Indiana, Indiana, and I said, I'm doing this virtually. Okay, so if, if there wasn't a hotspot, I actually do think that airplane travel and I've read a lot about this because I was I was about to. Well, actually, I was thinking of driving to be honest with you. So, that I, <laughs> but and I'm still nervous. But but if if we're not in the middle of a surge, there's relative safety. If you wear your mask, you wear a face shield, you use your you wash your hands. Uh, with here's the caveat: if you do all the right things, I think you're pretty safe. Except. If you happen to get on a plane that's packed and 10 people unbeknownst to you have COVID. And when that happens, despite all your efforts, um, you're exposing yourself to some risk. And so in the middle of a, a surge with hot spots, I think it's more dangerous. And yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think I think getting tested before you go to know that's fine. Getting tested when you arrive is worthless because right. you've only been on the plane for six hours. Nothing's changed. And if right. you were exposed, it's going to take you four to three. You're really going to take somewhere between three to five to eight days before you test right. positive. Um, so 
you know, this is the tricky one is, you know, I wear a mask everywhere I go with one exception. I've got uh, my kids and my two grandkids live close by. They're isolating. We're isolating. I'm okay with not wearing a mask. I'll take that chance. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, we all take risks in our life. And, and I think the more we learn about this virus, the more we can take reasonable risks if we so choose. But the one thing that is abundantly clear, if you're outside with people you don't know, wear a damn mask. Right. And, and that is the problem. If everyone in this country were to follow that advice and not go anywhere without wearing a mask, we would knock this thing down in a few weeks. But for some reason, we have stubborn people who think it's necessary to show their whatever it is that they don't have to wear a mask. And that is what has killed 200,000 plus people. And, and what's, what's sad is, yeah, we don't have a lot of young people dying. Though when the young people die, they're young people of color. For the most we part. Don't, we don't have a lot of younger to middle-aged people who are dying, but when they die, for the most part, they're people of color. What we do have is 75 to 80% of the deaths in people over 65. Right. And, and close to 40% of the deaths of people in nursing homes. Right. And um, so to that point, which I also write about, uh, is that um, so a good percentage of the people in nursing homes and those people who work in nursing homes are not only older people, but the people who work in nursing homes for the a large measure are part of a marginalized population. They're either from other countries, they're people of color. Um, and so, you know, there is the thinking that, okay, so just like with other segments of our society with marginalized populations, they don't get the, the same level of um, concern or attention that other people do. You know, COVID-19 COVID has shown a light on both racism and ageism in our society. And it has shown a light on inequities in healthcare, inequities in a lot of things. Um, and hopefully we can learn something from that. Hopefully we, I mean, look, I, I'm someone who always looks for the silver lining. If we don't use what we've learned, to improve things in this country, we will have lost a, a huge opportunity. And, and I think that's the focus we need to be taking is to protect folks who are vulnerable going forward. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And um, yeah, hopefully we're turning a different corner. Uh, so I guess I, I tend to um, be a more positive thinking person as well. So I guess you have to I, I don't think there's any choice but to think positively about the direction that we're moving in and the awarenesses that have come to light uh, that the virus has shown us in many uh, different parts of our society, not only for older people in nursing homes, but 
you know, there have been many vulnerable populations that have been exposed um, during this whole virus and, you know, other, in other situations besides just the virus. So um, I think that's crucial. Well, I mean, this has just been, um, this has just been so phenomenal. I mean, I just, uh, this has just been terrific. So I really appreciate this. And um, I guess on, on that note, I guess I'll have to sign off. So, you know. Well, I, I thank you for having me on. And uh, maybe in a couple few months, uh, you'll have me back and we can see what we've accomplished. Absolutely. By the way, is there anything that you'd like to say about how people could get in touch with you or get more information about any of the initiatives that you see coming down the pike? You know, I think, as I said uh, or I don't think I did say, um, or no, at the beginning, Twitter. Um, you can follow me at, at Wasdoc, W-A-S-S-D-O-C. And honestly, I think that is the, I've had so many people reach out and get in touch with me through Twitter. It's really the only social media platform I regularly use. And I think uh, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, I'm pretty much tweeting about things that relate to older adults, to nursing homes, to COVID. And I, I now fortunately can stop doing any tweets about anything political because the election's over, even though I stayed away from it for the most part to begin with. Right. Um, with the caveat, if I see things that aren't working, if I see things that need advocacy, I am not shy about tweeting about them. Right. And, and I think there are opportunities there for all of us to come together and to harness that energy, whether it be at the state level, the local level, the national level. So yeah, at Wastock, uh, best way to, to, to reach out to me, actually. Okay, well, well, this has just been terrific. So, you know, I just want to say thank you for generously sharing your time today on Senior Straight Talk. I mean, the conversation was unbelievably enlightening. I want to thank you for all your advocacy and the valuable work you do from the bottom of my heart, uh, because that's my passion, and the invaluable information that you gave to our listeners. So I'll just say, um, please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And this is Phyllis Amon signing off. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.